You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Kevin Smith preaches the dogma of yoga hosers. week, Adam, Thomas, and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And I am all 37 Thomas Mariani's in a row. And I am Adam Berserker Thomas. That's beautiful, man. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> and uh, Adam, you and I are not the only ones here, uh, because we have a guest with us. We have a guest that means a lot to me. He's a podcaster in his own right, and he's the host of the new podcast, Have Not Seen This. It is Mr. Rafe Tell. Rafe, how's it going? I am the one who talks at end, whether you want me to or not. Uh, I'm good. How are you guys? I mean, I'm good. No one cleared this with me, but that's fine. <laughs> I never clear anything with you. That's what are true. you talking about? Just, we literally just turn on the record like, hey, Adam, we have a guest. Whatever. Fine. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, uh, Rafe, you decided to come on for this week's topic, which in honor of um, Jay and Silent Bob Get Rebooted is coming out, not in this particular week we're releasing, but in a couple weeks later. Why Kevin Smith in particular? Uh, well, you know, Kevin and I go way back. Uh, no, he's, uh, he's just a couple years older than me, and so I find that a lot of his movies connect with me because i'm just i'm i'm in that right age group to connect with whatever's going on with kevin in his life and that he then puts into his films so even though i didn't discover him until midway through his career um the, the movies just really kind of resonate with me and and of course last listening to the last couple of weeks and, and hearing that you know he's on adam's list i felt like somebody needs to be on who's willing to give you know smith a a, a fair shake <laughs> well, um, for maybe newer listeners, if you don't know, Adam has a list of people who he is not necessarily a fan of. Every time he sees them, he sort of groans. And you have said previously that uh, Kevin Smith is on that list, Adam, yes? Yes, uh, he didn't start off on that list, though. I mean, I was a big Kevin Smith fan uh, when I was younger, like Clerks, Mallrats, things like that, even our good feature tonight. But then it's like... Everything else. <laughs> Fuck. God. <laughs> where, where, where would you say that starts to turn for you in terms of his like filmography? In terms of his films? Yeah. Probably Chasing Amy. I just I found it pretentious then. I still kind of find it pretentious and very troublesome. I mean, that's interesting. I, I It definitely hasn't aged the best in terms of his filmography, necessarily. Uh, but, I mean, for me, I, I, I made you guys go first because there's a lot to this with me yeah i'm looking forward to this story kevin smith um was a really huge obsession of mine at probably way too young an age because i actually saw our good feature on television i would say probably around like 12 oh jeez uh, i know i know <laughs> that's the thing wow there, there was a solid point during it was like high school like early parts of high school where i was like so steeped in this the view universe as he calls it 
um, that entire s- series of characters and all that. I had like books, comics uh, that I read religiously. I had the DVDs. I watched those movies several times. I especially loved the commentaries, and that kind of spun off into his evening with Kevin Smith stuff. And then Smodcast was the first podcast I ever listened to. And that really just, like, opened my eyes. Like, oh my god, you could have this and it's not, like, on a DVD over the movie. <laughs> it's this, like, hour or so of just two people talking. And that spun me off into listening to other podcasts that he was especially a guest on. Like, the Slash Filmcast is a something I still listen to. is one of my favorite podcasts. David Chen is probably the biggest reason I went into podcasting. But then he was also on a certain show that Rafe used to host... He was actually a guest on the Weekly Blend audio show he did back for Cinema Blend. I That's where I started listening to Rafe's show, and then eventually I got to be on the incarnation that was Widescreen Warrior, and then I got to be on some other podcast stuff for uh, Gruesome Magazine. That's where I met Adam, and basically, without Kevin Smith, this show wouldn't exist at all. So now we know who to blame. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all all oh, your yeah. hate letters over to him. <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing. I, I have, like, a lot of history with this dude, so no matter what issues I might have, and I'll say a lot of them when we get into our second feature especially, or even with, like, some of the stuff he's done where, like, he's become much more, like, sort of a nerd persona now, he kind of fancies himself sort of like a Stan Lee type in terms of what he wants to present his image as. I, I think, if nothing else, that dude has become a fantastic sort of marketer of his brand. Uh, not so much as a filmmaker, though. That Those kind of diverge after a certain point. <laughs> Between his skills there and his skills as a filmmaker, I would argue. I mean, a fantastic marketer of his brand that's also not nearly as successful as it once was. I mean, you got to give him credit for still plugging, though, I guess. No, I mean, I think that's the thing. is That's what's kept him alive as long as it has, honestly. Because if he was still just making movies in general, I don't think he would have nearly the same amount of people. He would be far forgotten. As opposed to, I think it's mostly, I agree, keeping his certain fan base of Gen Xers and slightly below, like, around. But at the same time, he still has made, like, some kind of, you know, a little mini-marketing internet empire. And even, I would also argue that, like, a Clerks and some of his other earlier movies directly influence internet culture for better and worse. Oh, absolutely. I can absolutely agree with that. There are fucking hundreds of Randalls online. (laughs) <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, enough of that backstory, uh, because we have two specific films to talk about, because if you're new, at the end of our last episode, uh, we had a good and a bad pick that was uh, determined by my two good picks, I'm picking number between 1 and 10, and I picked number between 1 and 10 for his two uh, bad picks, and so we have our good movie is Dogma, and our bad movie is Yoga Hosers, so uh, we're going to have a lot of fun tonight, I guess you should say. <laughs> It'll be very interesting. So uh, let's get into our first feature then with 1999's Dogma. This is why I had to come down here this morning. You call me, you tell me it's important. We're going home. Two fallen angels have just discovered a loophole that can get them back into heaven. Outstanding work! Now, I'm to charge you with a holy crusade. One person has been chosen to stop them, but she won't have to do it alone. I'm Jay, and this is my head of a life mate, Sam Bob. You gotta be kidding me. The world's a death, this dude, I swear to God. <laughs> Get it? So Dogma came out uh, November 12th, 1999, and was written and directed, obviously, by Kevin Smith. It is the fourth film in the previously mentioned uh, View Askewniverse, which includes Clerks and Marantz and Chasing Amy before it, and then Jane Silent Bob Strike Back, Clerks 2, and Jane Silent Bob Rebooted, 
upcoming after it um, that all interconnect with a bunch of characters that are mainly based in New Jersey. And uh, this one is obviously the more fantastical, as it were, given um, it's a sort of urban fantasy religious picture, as it is. And uh, as I mentioned, I watched this was the first Kevin Smith movie I ever watched. I watched it on Comedy Central on television, obviously very heavily edited to the point where I didn't know that the Golagothan was a part of this movie until I saw the actual version of it. They completely cut that entire bit from the movie. And I bet the you didn't notice it at all. <laughs> no, that's the thing. Yeah, because it doesn't really need to be there at all. It's no. it's no, not 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 whatsoever. Um, but Rafe, given you're our guest, so why don't you go ahead and start? When did you first see Dogma, and uh, what do you think of it? Well, uh, the first time I saw this movie is quite a story on its own that I'm 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 probably not going to share. But uh, uh, it was probably the third Kevin Smith movie that I was introduced to and I immediately fell in love with it as I'm, I'm not a very religious person. I'm a a spiritual person, but not a very religious person. And what he's commenting on in religion here kind of connected with me. And I mean, the more you watch it, the more you realize it's, it's not a deep commentary on religion. It, It has its moments, but what he's done here. Is really quite brilliant as far as using aspects of theology or theological stories as kind of a foundation, just as you might with like Greek mythology or such. He has characters, he has ideas, but he's really telling his own story here. And in the middle of it, you have Linda Fiorentino's character kind of having a crisis of faith and and using this story as a way to kind of push her one direction or the other. I not only fell in love with it from that aspect, but the the comedic performances in this, uh, you know, I mean, especially Chris Rock and George Carlin are just fantastic. Um, So I I love this movie, and it it continues to probably be my favorite Kevin Smith movie. All right, and what about Adam, your first experiences and how you feel about Dogma? Uh, You know, to be honest, uh, when I first saw it, I didn't know how to take it because it is quite different than Clerks and Mallrats, which when I was a kid, I was a much bigger Mallrats fan than Clerks. Now it's like, how the fuck did I love Mallrats? But, <laughs> um, I, so I didn't know how to handle this one the first time I saw it. Uh, it took like a second or a third viewing for me to really appreciate it, uh, especially a lot of the nuances and the subtext and things like that. I do think this is might be his best crafted movie, especially in the View Askewiverse or whatever we're calling it. And I, I agree with Rafe. I, I mean, some of the performances in the movie are just spot on, hilarious. I still have somewhere a dashboard Buddy Christ. Like, <laughs> I don't know where it is. I got to find it. But no, I absolutely, absolutely loved the movie. I love the fantastical elements of it. I love taking the, you know, the story we all know and sort of flipping it on its head and just giving Alan Rickman like a Ken doll sort of body it's just <laughs> it was so perfect yeah it's weird to realize that this is the first time we've ever covered a movie with alan rickman and adam what the fuck i know We're slipping. We're slipping. <laughs> it took us this long to cover a movie but admittingly he is so phenomenal in this movie as the metatron i think he really just like in his few scenes he just kind of just like weaves together this whole movie in such an interesting way he he's the first one to really introduce the sort of bigger fantastical elements and he's also sort of the most Douglas Adams-y character. I think he 
is probably the character that kind of attracted me at that time when I was a kid because I had read through and loved the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books. And I think he has that sort of same sort of like dry wit about him this entire time. And I think he just sells, especially right from the moment that he comes in and just says that he's the Metatron and Linda Fiorentino is confused. And he's like, if there's not a movie about it, it doesn't matter, does it? You don't know what the hell it is. Like that instantly like really hooks you into those sort of bigger ideas the movie's about to dull out from here. You have to laugh, though, because I know that Smith made a big deal to uh, Jason Mewes about, you know, professionalism as an actor because they were actually bringing in big cast members, including Alan Rickman. And yet one of the first scenes, he has him drop trowel. You know, it's like, yeah, that's professionalism, but uh, wait, what? <laughs> but but yeah, I, I want to also ask Adam, speaking of that scene, Linda Fiorentino obviously is the lead of this movie. And when we talked about Men in Black, Adam, you said you weren't a huge fan of Fiorentino. Do you like her better here than in Men in Black? Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. Uh, there's just more nuance to her character here. Like, I think Linda Fiorentino is, you know, she, she reminds me of, and this might sound odd. But her acting style reminds me almost like a like a William Hurt or Kevin Costner style acting. Very understated, very muted. But when they, she needs to sh- sort of really branch out and show emotion, she's fully capable of doing it. And I think she's quite good in this movie. Yeah, I remember apparently um, Smith said that she wasn't the best to work with. He had originally actually written this for Joey Lauren Adams, who was in previously Ball Rats oh. and to the female lead of Chasing Amy. The studio ended up saying, no, we want Alinda Fiorentino right off of her being a Men in Black. And he later said, I would have wished we could have gotten Jean Garofalo to play this part instead of the small part she plays in this movie. And a really fun scene to the two of them, where especially she's just like, well, you can ask God for a third option. I love Garofalo's delivery on that bit. Um, but but then uh, Fiorentino, I, I really do agree. I think especially there's a great scene between her and Ben Affleck on the train that I think really sells her sort of regret and anger and bitterness, but at the same time sort of a real longing for like what she once had and what she's just like in this character in this particular low state of her life. And it's also really good drunk acting, which is rare at the same time. It feels actually convincing drunk acting. I find that interesting because I've always felt like she plays the exact same character here and in Men in Black, except for, yeah, I agree with you about the train scene being uh, a a definite departure from that. And yeah, she's her drunk acting is is really good there. But I've never been impressed with her in in either movie, and I I felt like it was pretty much the same performance. So I'll have to go back and and look at it for that, that nuance that Adam's talking about. I could be projecting. (laughs) (laughs) it's very possible but at the same time she holds like a solid sort of human anchor for like all these other characters to bounce off of like who would you guys say is your favorite of the other especially sort of uh, religious themed supernatural characters oh well alan rickman i mean there's no doubt there but i also just love the chemistry between ben affleck and matt damon and of course they're doing this right off the heels of goodwill hunting and in fact, they you know they left production and went and got their Oscar for that. And just the, their chemistry together here is is fantastic. I, I particularly love the the first scene with them when uh, Damon's character is talking about to the nun about the Alice in Wonderland uh, being the death of religion and that kind of stuff. And and Affleck's you know just look you've you've seen God you've talked with him and yet you're telling this person he's like yeah I just love fucking fucking with the clergy and I just I I, I don't know what it is about the, just the attitude between the two of them but it just feels so comfortable watching their conversations well yeah obviously because they grew up as friends together it obviously feels like a natural chemistry which is what kevin smith always strives for in a lot of his movies is especially even behind the scenes he always loved the idea of like 
a film unit is sort of like a building or a continuing friendship that keeps on going from obviously Jason Mewes has been in all of his fucking movies and he knew him as just like some podunk kid from Jersey um and I think that really I agree continues onward with like Damon and Affleck here which especially upon this watch I really dug the sort of uh way their characters turn and sort of flip from what they originally were at the start of the movie whereas you mentioned like uh, Loki is a lot more of like a um Old Testament, but at the same time, kind of, like, funner character, whereas Bartleby is, like, much more of the uh, straight man who is not as embracing of, like, these older tactics. And then once that train scene happens, they sort of reverse on each other, and Loki becomes the more sympathetic one and tries to treat things a bit more seriously in terms of, like, actually the weight of what they're doing, versus Bartleby is much more mad and doesn't become nearly as funny necessarily as Loki was before, but becomes a much more menacing and disturbing figure as things go along. Kind of reminded me that, like, I wish Ben Affleck would go into more of these sort of, like, almost American Psycho-style rules, where it's just like, he's like, oh, you're very pretty, but you're a very disturbing person when you actually get to know you. I think that would be much more interesting track for his career than the mixed bag he's had maybe in the last five or six years, to say the least. Well, and the way the... (laughs) The way the story sets them up, they're actually... Uh, they're not really the bad guy uh, un- until that last act. They're very sympathetic, and you understand why they're doing what they're doing, and and you can't help but actually support their ideas a little bit just because of the way that they're they're depicted in, throughout the story. You know, they they've been punished, and this is their chance to get their paradise back, and you you, you can't help but feel bad for them until. Uh, pretty much you're, you're right that train scene is a turning point for a lot and that's kind of the moment that not only do those two characters switch but that's also where they start to lose the audience's sympathy from that point on and this is after keep in mind a scene where loki has murdered an entire boardroom of people pretty much god, i love that scene yes. you didn't say god bless you when i sneezed <laughs> <laughs> you're his father you sick fuck uh. <laughs> But no, back to your question, I, I mean, of course, Alan Rickman is Metatron is probably, for me, the shining example. But I also do like the idea of the muse. I do like that idea that they throw that sort of in the mix. And plus, I just, I like Salma Hayek for several reasons, but I, I think she's actually kind of fun. at least. She's woman and Latino. What were you thinking? Um, <laughs> no, I, uh, I think she's quite fun in this, too. But of course, I mean. Fuck, man, George Carlin. George Carlin's so good in this movie. Yes, yeah, so he's only in about two scenes. We make such a great impression, especially the whole bit where it's like, the Catholic Church does not make mistakes. Okay, mistakes were made. <laughs> like, the delivery <laughs> on those two bits yeah. is so phenomenal. And I also really, I, I will say, to, to stick up for somebody who's maybe not the best actor, but is playing himself quite admirably, is uh, Chris Rock. I think oh, yeah. is, a, is pretty fun in this part. And especially, I think, when he's de- doling out some of, like, the larger context like sort of bigger picture stuff especially like the last scion monologue he gives to uh bethany um about just like oh well you know you ever think that um you know of two people who are married for that long wouldn't be having sex after that that's just plain gullibility like that whole diatribe it fits like once again it's chris rock being himself but at the same time it fits this sort of doling out this exposition in a very clever and fun and comedic way well, and for that matter, Alanis Morissette's brief appearance is also quite fun. I mean, I love the fact that once things are relatively resolved, she goes over and smells some flowers and is doing handstands up against a tree while Metatron is actually, you know, speaking for her. And I just, I loved that uh, that approach to depicting a 
a god. Where she's motherly when she first appears with Bartleby. Right. And then, um, which is very interesting, and then she becomes very childlike and whimsical in a way that's very endearing, and especially the whole, just like, but can you just answer me something? And she just boops her on the nose. is so wonderful. It's such a great way to play that character out, yeah. What do you guys think of some other people that we haven't mentioned? Like, um, what about Jason Lee as Azriel? You know, a very popular Kevin Smith persona, having been in Mallrats and chasing <sighs> him previous to this, and from here completely uh, starting to drop off the face of the earth. As, uh, hey, he had my name as Earl. That's true, he did. I'm talking more cinematically. <laughs> He had Alvin and the Chipmunks and the Squeak Wolf. Yeah. Yeah, right. Stealing he did have those. Those were movies he was in, Rafe. You're right. <laughs> he also co-headlined with Tom Green in the movie. So, I mean, come on, guys. <laughs> no, I find him just fucking nail-bitingly annoying in this movie. I really, really do. I just don't remember. Is he on your list, Adam? I don't know, man. I'm saving the bottom ten for, like, really special spots but ain't gonna in there bottom 10 of like what is haven't we established there's like billions of people on this list Adam? yeah so i mean pretty much i mean every everybody in this room and that would just be me <laughs> am, am i on the list if you want to be whatever <laughs> no nah, i just i don't like him very much in this i it, he never comes across as a threat to me you never i never feel like any danger from his character so i mean then you get the shit demon and all it's like hey whatever he feels like a side character well he literally is a side character listen asshole (laughs) (laughs) technically he's the big bad i know but he feels like an it feels like an afterthought to me like oh we gotta get one big bad in this so there you go what i like also about him though is that he's sort of like a guy who six people to do his bidding obviously there's the, the three hockey guys the kids that go around, um, but there's also the Golagothan and some other people. He's, I think, what works about his character for me, and where I think his similar performance here that has been praised in like a Mallrats that I don't think holds up very well, is in this case it feels like he's somebody with such a massive ego that thinks of himself as such a masterful, like, oh, I'm a fucking demon, I'm this great, awesome guy. But at the same time, he is actually very low. I think they do a pretty good job of balancing that out, where he all the like big, important stuff that he does, he sicks people on. The biggest thing he does is like he shoots the bartender, and that's barely anything. Holy bartender, I get it now. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit, that was the best! Yeah, I, I think that works here, as opposed to, like, in Mallrats, he's treated as like, oh, this is like the sarcastic Bill Murray hero, or especially Chevy Chasey, which... Later, Kevin Smith would try to make a Fletch prequel starring Jason Lee, which would have been a bad idea um, <laughs> on many levels. Him and Mallrats, it definitely feels almost like a precursor to like a comic skatey shitty nerd. And I like the fact that they sort of have that over-enunciated delivery fit onto an asshole smaller demon who thinks he's big shit. I think that works better for him there. Or even in Chasing Amy, where admittingly he's also playing precursor to every troll who hates gay people on the internet. <laughs> At the same time, that's the weird thing is Jason. I remember around the time where I was getting introduced to Kevin Smith, everyone was like, "Oh man, Jason Lee is like his sort of like great actor to like play off all of his great dialogue." And it's like, well, he's a great character to play off all of like Kevin Smith's worst impulses. I feel in those earlier movies, and here that's used to the effect of it's the you know asshole demon who really is not nearly as big a shit as you think he is. I think that makes him work better here than any of the other movies, honestly. I love the fact that you keep using the word shit, and, you know, he has the shit demon, so, you know. Well, he's also the guy who <laughs> says stink palm in Mallrats. He's very shit-focused, isn't he? Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> 
obviously we haven't talked about them, even though they're the big icons of Smith's filmography and their supporting characters here. Do we think this is the best use of Jane Silent Bob in one of these movies? Uh, no, I think Clerks is probably their best use. Uh, where they were just the outside guys who were just out there fucking dealing drugs would cause, you know, mayhem and fuck with people and everything else. And that was all you got. I like him better as like little side characters. I do not like Jay and Silent Bob as the leads. I really, really don't. Well, I mean, we would get that in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Oh, yes. Thomas, I know. That's what I was getting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think if if you're going to use them as leads... You know, this is a better way to do it than Chase and Let Bob Strike Back because I'm I'm not a fan of that one, but but I, I enjoy them here. Jay definitely gets on my nerves, but he's also designed to to some degree because there's really nobody that annoying, um, and it, it it's kind of nice to see Silent Bob back to his namesake of being quieter after you know being a little wordier in, in some of the previous movies, but. Uh, I, my personal favorite use of them is in the Clerks animated series, but uh, but I, I like them enough here. I just I, if you're going to put them in center, then put them in something like this. Well, and even then, it's not like direct of center, like it's, it's like off yeah. the side slightly, which I agree, like that works really well for them because and when they're part of like an ensemble piece, they can react off of people more as opposed to just Jay reacting off of Kevin Smith is a lot more grating when they're the central focus of it. I would say even in, like, I'm not... I think Clerks 2 has aged terribly, but I think they hold up pretty well in that movie. I think they're sort of, like, the bright spots of that movie. And I would say here it works in a similar vein where, as I think Smith even said this, that whenever the movie gets kind of too inflated about itself, they kind of deflate the balloon a bit in terms of, like, kind of airing down, like, what this movie actually kind of balances, which is, like, big theological ideas and dick and fart jokes obviously and i think jay works for the most part to me except for when it gets a bit more sexual um i think especially sort of at the end when he's trying to like get on the promise that linda fiorentino allegedly oh, gave god i love that that cracks me up they laid the foundation for so many things early in the picture and like that's a joke that then you get the punchline later on but there's several other things throughout that kind of there's a little foundation a little thread laid earlier on in the film and it it, it pays off later on but they don't make a big deal out of it and i i always prefer that kind of storytelling and that's i mean i think this is the most sophisticated of smith's scripts and i i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that it went through like eight revisions uh over a period of you know uh uh 10 10 years five years but it, well, well right because he wrote this shortly after clerks got like picked up around festivals it was like that early he was thinking of doing this as a feature yeah I think that polish and, and rewriting gave him the opportunity to make a, a more sophisticated and better script. And I, like, I love that joke about him, him, you know, oh, we got five minutes left. You said at the beginning you'd fuck me. And it's like, yeah, OK, I get that. <laughs> the thing is, you know how many guys I've known that are that guy who all they care about is getting laid and getting high? I mean, I know several guys like, well, I didn't know him. Now I'm a well-adjusted. Well, well-adjusted might be pushing it, <laughs> but now I'm an adult. but no i knew so many guys like this and like i said that's why i I like him more in clerks because it's a little bit more believable uh the first clerks anyways it never bothered me because i think that's the point of jay in these movies is to be the crass just 
real piece of shit character. I mean, if nothing else, I might say it's probably Jason Mewes' best performance as the character, I would say, because I think he gets the timing pretty perfectly right. Especially, I think my favorite bit with Jay is during, like, after the end of all this has happened, and after Bartleby's been killed, and he just gets up like, Why the fuck did you hug my head? What's going on? Who the fuck was that? Why did his head explode? And then he just falls apart the moment Lance Morris had kisses him. I really like all that, because it almost has, like, this comedic, nearly, like, Looney Tunes Daffy Duck style energy to it. Yeah. I I, th- I think that's where it really works as a contrast, once again, to, like, some of the more serious stuff that's going on at the same time, as opposed I just think the sexual stuff doesn't age that well. Didn't he call Lannis Morissette the piano? <laughs> Why is this chick not talking? Yes. Yeah. Be- because the uh, the role was originally written with Holly Hunter in mind, from the piano. That's true. Uh, yes. Yeah. But instead of getting a Lannis Morissette and also having her do a song at the end, I guess, yeah, that also fits. It's very 1999 of the movie. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> but but yeah, you mentioned, Rafe, that you would say this is the strongest of his scripts. Um, I agree that I think it is definitely the best structured and lays out, like I said, a lot of the mythology and all this other stuff um, pretty well. And I think it makes up for so much of the misfortunes of like the budget necessarily and Smith's own lack of directorial flair, um, which he, he admits, obviously. He said several times that like he's not much of a director as much as he is a writer. And I think this is one of those cases where like he doesn't have necessarily the flourish or the budget to do, say a fight scene on a train where it's very <laughs> awkwardly edited <laughs> or um, any of like sort of the bigger confrontation moments do definitely feel a lot more limited. Like, even the goal of Gotham where the, that gang's about to destroy him and then off screen, they get thrown around and we have people reacting awkwardly. <laughs> but yeah, would you agree with that maybe Adam? Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. And this is also his, what do we say? Fourth movie. And this was the first one that really kind of had, huge huge advertising behind it like this was going to be you know kevin smith's big movie with you know these guys who just won the oscar and everything else and yeah i just don't think he's capable of handling big ideas he's definitely better when it comes to small movies with you know just pure comedic stuff and everything not to say i don't like this movie but i definitely agree there is a lack of sort of director flair this doesn't I don't watch this movie and be like, oh, look at the tricks Kevin Smith is pulling off. Like, never. Kevin Smith, to me, doesn't really have a discernible style at all. As a director, definitely. But you can say that the writing kind of makes up for that, those short Oh, yeah, no, the writing is fucking tight in this movie. But, like, I think this is his most tightly written script. And Have you guys uh, seen that this was back in the news recently? No, how? Because it's not available for streaming, where most of his other movies are on Netflix. And uh, there was a question as to why this film isn't available on streaming. And I, I guess people expected it to be like the religious controversy or that kind of stuff. But no, it's it's actually worse than that. The uh, the Weinsteins privately funded this with their own money. And so when their different companies Ooh. have gone, you know, Miramax went to, to what, Disney and the Weinstein company went wherever it went, this film wasn't included in any of those because they privately own it. Now that people are unlikely to have interest in doing any business with the Weinsteins, this is probably just going to be dead as far as streaming and such goes. I think I've seen interviews with Kevin Smith discussing the deal that he had to make for this movie with the Weinsteins and that it was kind of a pain in the ass. Well, I mean, because like the the, the problem was at the time um, when this was coming out, because it was a Miramax movie, because Disney even owed them at that time. Um, even I think right around when Clerks came out, they, they bought Miramax. Um, the biggest trouble was that uh, the Catholic League and Bill Donahue kind of latched onto this movie as a target. And so immediately, like, 
Miramax and their parent companies, I'm sure, shifted it away um, over to Lionsgate because it's like, we don't want this controversy on our plate. And Smith has said that many times. And like I watched some early interviews that he did around the time this was coming out, and he did say that it was an issue of like, you know, people glommed onto this as a controversy, even though it's a silly you know, dick and fart joke movie with some messages about religion in it. Um, and it ended up kind of just like screwing over the movie in terms of like having, I guess, a bigger distribution. Well, they're not even like really negative messages about Christianity or religion. They're, they're just messages, but they're not necessarily negative. Yeah. It's only just that they're fighting sort of the traditional dogma, like literally. Of, right. Yeah. Especially, uh... of especially just like Jesus and Mary never would have had sex and had children after this. No, that's not possible. It's like, it's an interpretation you can have, and it's one worth discussing. <laughs> right. Well, you agree. There's nothing to me insulting about Christianity in this movie. If anything, it's it's commenting on the perversion that uh, you know high-ranking organized religion has taken. That the message has been so view askewed, <laughs> but it's been so just warped and twisted to. You know, just the levels it's been now and, you know, people unfortunately hide behind religion to cover up controversy and crime and things like that, that uh, I think, if anything, this movie is just showing that it's okay to be religious and Christian and anything like that. I don't think this is insulting in any way. And that's coming from someone who grew up Irish Catholic. I don't think this movie is insulting at all. Well, right, it's less about sort of, like, religion as a whole and more about organized religion specifically. Yes, and even how absolutely. certain And even how certain um, businesses kind of tried to take that practice to their own um, more corporate deeds, like especially the movie scene, which we've talked about, but is a great example of that, where it is all just totally about, like, oh, you hide behind, like, a certain figure, in this case, a literal golden calf, which, it's, it's a bummer that movie has become just, like, a stupid in-joke in all these other movies, because, like, movie is such a great satirical concept of just, like, oh, we're going this far with it. And I wonder if that might have been also a reason why Disney-owned Miramax kind of shuffled the movie away a bit. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Who could they be talking about? What corporate sponsor? Are you meaning to say that Disney would be offended if anybody attacked them? Never. Never. Oh, okay. Because that's what, that's what I thought you were saying. No, we I'm not. Of course, I'm not. Um, and we would like to announce Double Edge Bill is now a Disney-owned product. We're going to be streaming on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> We're going to clean up the language. It'll be great. <laughs> Wait, if you clean up the language, what's left? Literally nothing. It's no, gonna, yeah. yeah, it's going to be bad. Yeah, that's true. It's just going to be it's gonna be awful. <laughs> it's soft-edged Bill is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I did not like this. I agree. Well, thank you, everybody. Goodbye. <laughs> All of our double features are Disney ones, and we like both the movies. Yeah, we love them. Do you guys agree with about like the movie scene in particular? That to me is one of the more prescient scenes of the movie because we certainly have that where we we have our own icons these days. Not necessarily something like movie. Disney is a religion unto itself, you know. Mm-hmm. Especially the more that they acquire. You know, they have Star Wars now, they have Marvel now. It it wasn't big enough for them to already be like, you know, the house of Mickey. Now they have all these other things that, that, yeah, I mean, people, 
you know, spend fortunes going to the, the the parks and that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely, the satire's there, and it's absolutely dead on. Or even especially in terms of even the geek culture stuff that, like, once again, Smith really started to perpetrate after a certain point on, like, his few askew message boards and stuff like that that I fucking frequented as a younger person. Um, it, it's definitely sort of shows that, like, now people even treat, like, certain geek properties as a religion, like, not even just a Marvel, but a DC. How many people f- fucking hid behind, like, Heath Ledger Joker avatars on Twitter <laughs> and shit like that, where it's just like, oh, we have to, like, immediately go to this particular icon to support all of our singular beliefs, and if you don't support that, then who knows what could potentially happen at a certain point. I think that's not, and it doesn't also help that the move, that part is literally two guys sneak into a room filled with people and, you know, shoot it up. At the time, this came out not too, like a few months, obviously after um, a Columbine. So it even like, it becomes, it's become sadly even more relevant to a certain degree there. Well, on that note, we're having a lot of fun tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but uh, but maybe we should go ahead and sneak into our uh, final thoughts, I guess, overall. So, Rafe, as our guest, uh, your final thoughts on Dogma. Well, I, I think my comment to you when you told me which movies we were watching was that I'd never seen this movie sober before, and that's that's certainly true. Uh, for some reason, this, this ended up becoming uh, a go-to when I was drinking type movie. So watching it this time without enhancement i think it holds up as far as social commentary goes i I think as i said i think it's his most sophisticated script and i think for the most part it's played off really well um i i think fiorentino is actually a weak point for it just overall but i'm not i wasn't looking for that nuance that that adam seems to think is there again Uh, again projecting (laughs) so to me the the viewisk universe this is where it peaked because I, as I said, I didn't like Jane and Silent Bob Strike Back. Clerks 2 did resonate with me again when it came out because of, of things that were going on in my own life at the same time that that came out. But I, I also thought that he was getting cruder and cruder with those movies. And I, I just, I don't know, for some, from as far as poignancy goes, as far as sophistication goes, as sophisticated as you can be with a dick and fart joke movie, I, I think this is the best of Smith's career. And I, I personally love that he's stepped out of the universe and and moved into new directions. I was I was being a little critical of him when I was writing for Cinema Blend about how he needed to step out of his comfort zone and push himself as a director to see what he was like as an artist instead of just doing the same thing over and over again. And I love that he's done that, but I still think this represents the 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 pinnacle of his achievement right now. And now he's tiptoeing right back into it. <laughs> <laughs> which i'm a little disappointed by just to be honest i i'm i don't have a ton of interest in jay and silent bob rebooted will i see it yeah probably but it's it's not on my race to go see this list but uh no i i really like this one i i think it's a, a, a strong film adam i agree i i you know in hindsight after seeing i all of his movies now i do think this is his best uh, film, at least in the VSQ universe. I, do I think it's his overall best film? No. Uh, I have another one. I do really, really enjoy this movie, and I do think this is the best utilization of the Jay inside the Bob characters, as far as them taking on a more major role. I might have projected, like I said, again, Linda Fiorentino, but I don't think she's that bad in this. Uh, and I, I think it's a really, really just well-constructed, tight script. And, uh, it's fun. I just think it's a fun movie that also could potentially make you think, you know, different about certain things. But I, I do think it's a good movie. 
Well, in, unless it's our bad pick, we're not really specifically talking about another sure, Smith sure. movie. So, what do you what do you think is his best movie? Yes, I really really like Red State. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I, Michael I, Parks in Red State is fucking terrifying. Remember but, what I said about you know I, I was really hoping that he would move into his own direction, and I was critical. I mean, I, I wrote articles about that saying he needed to do that, and then Red State came out, and I was like, okay, yeah. I'm happy. <laughs> Which one of his cop-outs inspired that particular article? I don't know. I can't imagine what movie might have inspired that, Rafe, at all. What yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the movie I was afraid we were going to be watching this week. I was really happy to hear that it was neither of Adam's picks for uh, the bad okay, movie. I, I would not subject myself to that again. I won't do it. Yeah, that was my first response when when uh, Thomas told me what the movies were, and then I listened to, to last week's episode and heard that it wasn't even a contender. I was like, yes, Adam yeah. doesn't hate the world as much as he says he does. No, I do. No, I do. <laughs> uh, no, there's some softy in there if you didn't have a choice to, to, to put us to cop out. Right, it's self-preservation, exactly. That's what yeah. it is. It's total self-preservation. Um, but, I mean, I'll say for my final thoughts, um, just to give a bit more love to Linda Fiorentino, I think she does a solid job of, like, anchoring a lot of these other characters. And also, I think she's... It's maybe not nuanced, necessarily, but I think she has a real believable sort of, you know, backstory and history. Like, you can kind of feel at least that, like, she has been through a lot of shit. And I think that really anchors a movie that's really about somebody who's dealt with so much shit in their life and even other people who have like been cast aside and whether it be by God or by a husband who doesn't want to be around somebody who can't produce a child. Like it's, it's about people who kind of feel outcast and have been written out of the apostles in a certain case, um, kind of (laughs) coming together and having a weird sort of banded about family. I think especially, um, really watching it this time kind of reminded me how, like when I was a kid, my favorite movie was like the wizard of Oz. This kind of has an Oz structure where it's one character going on a journey down a road and finding all these different weird characters who help them out, you know, who help her out to find her eventual goal and meet a sort of wizard, in this case, fucking God, in in their in their own way. I, I think that's part of why I kind of, like, really gleamed onto this. And I agree, I think it is his best film. I think really, like, his script and some of the other stuff, we haven't mentioned it, but Howard Shore's score for this movie is really great. I think it really oh, yeah. does a lot of heavy lifting when the movie doesn't have the budget to necessarily do much. Um, and he, um, and just a lot of, the, obviously, the big ideas and the actors and all this other stuff. I think it's a phenomenal example of what Kevin Smith could do with, like, a limited budget, but a lot of sincerity and genuine sort of interest in questioning things and a lot of fun, a lot of good humor at the same time. No, even if it is dick and fart jokes. Hold, hold on to that uh, that Wizard of Oz metaphor. Because oh. that's that's I'm gonna I'm gonna bring back that in a little while I think. Interesting. We'll we'll put a pin in that. I'll I'll try to remember bring coming back to that. But uh, before we get into that, let's uh, have a little podcast break for an ESO show you could be listening to right now. Howdy. This year, the Earth Station One podcast will experience its favorite geek out moment with episode number five hundred. That's over nine years of nerdy pop culture reviews, interviews, and con reports. Join the celebration with Mike and Mike each week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite media player. We can also be found all over social media or at esonetwork.com. Peace. And we're done. We're done. We're done. All right, let's get into our bad feature for the evening. Uh, we're going with Yoga Hosers. Oh, it's Lulu and Lemon. <laughs> Canadian Nazis. It's the Broadseas. What is a broad sea? 
It's like a foot talk Nazi and it's made of bratwurst. Are you guys tripping on the pot? Destroy everything that threatens anyone or anything that you love. That's the yoga way. I'm not even supposed to be here today! Oh! Don't you move, you yoga hoser! So, uh, Yoga Hosers came out September 2nd, 2016. Uh, it is the latest film from Kevin Smith. Uh, and Adam, this was your bad pick, and uh, you uh, went with a very specific definition of terrible, didn't you? Uh, yeah, because this is one of the worst fucking movies <laughs> I've ever seen in my life. This is so unbelievably offensive and bad. But it's not offensive in a way that's like, I can't believe they said that. It's offensive that I can't believe this exists. it's so fucking bad i think it gave me a kidney stone this is just pure fucking smegma i mean it's just the worst shit dude it's the end times like it it is what it is this is just oh it it came out in the later half of 2016 that that's a lot of good markers for like end time shit is like 2016 (laughs) god damn nothing works in this movie i'm sorry I, I'm going to say it now, and you, know, you disagree with me. Nothing works in this movie. Nothing. This is just shit. <laughs> well, I want to put a pause in that, um, just for maybe a bit of backstory. Uh, Yoga Hosers is, um, like I said, the latest film from Kevin Smith. It is a spinoff of the movie we almost discussed, Tusk, uh, because it is part of his supposed True North trilogy, which will be a series of genre films Uh, that take place in Canada, as you can clearly tell by especially this movie. Um, And the two main characters, who are played by um, Harley Quinn Smith and Lily Rose Depp, uh, who, one of them, huh, familiar last name, uh, yes, is the daughter of Kevin Smith and the daughter of another celebrity who we'll talk about in a bit. And uh, they were two uh, clerk characters in Tusk, who now have their own movie here, that's ostensibly a PG-13 horror comedy, I want to say. (laughs) <laughs> but the thing is, the movie has various different genres it dips its toes into, I guess. And that's why I was very curious to hear Rafe's opinions on it, because, Rafe, you hadn't seen this one before. I had not seen this uh, until watching it for this podcast. And I don't think it's that bad. I, I don't think it's good, but I don't think it's bad either. I, I, maybe it's all my time with Gruesome Magazine having to watch some really terrible independent films, but... I just I feel like it, it's kind of aimless, and it reminds me of Ocean's uh, Twelve. It's the kind of movie that you have the feeling everybody would tell you they had a lot of fun making it, but that fun didn't end up on the screen. You know, they they all had fun with uh, the the parent we haven't talked about yet, and Smith and his daughter and, and the other daughter. You know, all just kind of joking around, and they get it on film. And again, I'm speculating, but just because they had fun in the moment making it doesn't mean that it translates up onto the screen. Yeah, uh, I think that's accurate. I mean, Smith is kind of especially. It's interesting when we talked about Dogma earlier. He said that that was like sort of the most arduous movie he had to make in terms of just the actual production, um, given a lot of like sort of dealing with bigger effects stuff and all that. And he, I, I saw a documentary where he had an interview at the time around when Dogma came out, saying, "I never want a movie to really feel like this one we're producing it again. I want to actually have like you know some fun making it." And I think that's kind of been a crutch he's relied on, especially in responding to criticism of his later movies. Is but like, oh, we had fun making it, and especially with this one, like, oh, I hung out with my daughter and her best friend who in real life, and we had a lot of fun making it. And it's like that might be true, Kevin, but. At the same time, you put it out into, like, mass theaters to attempt to have people watch it. Not a lot of people did. 
Um, but I think that's the thing. Is like if that were to be say a home movie or a filming of your kids like high school play or say just some internet short that you would put out there but people don't have to pay money to see necessarily like that's fine hanging out with your daughter i'm sure i I have nothing against that it's just that doesn't mean that the production that you produce has any value i'm with honestly adam i fucking hate this movie (laughs) so much i I will say i i think this is the absolute other side of the spectrum as far as the script goes that like you know saying that dogma is probably smith's most sophisticated script this one feels like it's just a bunch of stuff splashed down on the page maybe the day before they filmed it it doesn't it doesn't feel cohesive it doesn't really feel like there's any any sophistication to it whatsoever yeah and i i agree with you thomas just because you had fun making it and whatever the fuck doesn't mean it's good it has it, at all. And uh, clearly, this is an example. I could go wake my kid up out of bed and film something on my fucking phone and have a blast. Doesn't mean anybody else is going to want to fucking see it. Because it's, it's going to be stupid and terrible and a fucking vanity ego project, which this is for both the fucking fathers. This is garbage. This is, this is pure swill on every fucking level. The main bad guy, the fucking impressionist, Yes. What the shit? Oh, well, I talked to you in a voice that your kids will understand. Where do these kids know about Arnold Schwarzenegger? What the fuck? It's like Rich Little sitting down there doing it. <laughs> well, that, that is the joke of the scene, to be fair, is that they don't recognize oh. any of his impressions. But I think that's the interesting thing where Adam is just like, watch this perplexed. I think I have the opposite thing where I'm in too deep. Because I know that that is Ralph Garman, who is a comedian who also hosts a podcast with Kevin Smith on his Smodcast network called Hollywood Babylon, where he does all these impressions, and Kevin loves it. He is just laughing at any impression that Ralph Garman does. Some of them better than others. But then, yeah, that's the thing. Let's put it in the movie here. And it just ends up feeling, as Rafe mentioned, kind of just, hey, let's do this on the fly. In a way that's weird, because, like, Kevin Smith was famously before this very against improvisation. And just, like, no, stick to the script, do this. He even did line readings for people, which you shouldn't really do as a director early on in his career. And I think it's it's very clear that he's just kind of, you know, loosened up on that. Which, I mean, you know, probably good for him in terms of, like, you know, living a good life or whatever. Especially now, post, you know, heart attack. I hope he's living it a lot easier. I want to hear more from Rafe in terms of what's some of the stuff that you kind of like about the movie that makes it not as intolerable as it might be for Adam and I. One of the things that I I, I did like about this is, you know, Adam made the comment earlier that Smith doesn't really have a style. And yet that's kind of what I felt like watching this was you were seeing his evolution of style. You can see his previous pictures in this. You can see where Clerks influenced this script. You can see where Red State influenced this script. You can obviously see where Tusk influenced this script. And it feels like a culmination of what he's done before. That that doesn't make it good, but I still I thought it was kind of neat to see how Smith's previous projects influenced this one. The, the the chemistry between between the girls really works, of course, because they're they're real life friends. It's kind of the same thing we were talking about with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. You know, they're they're real life friends. That's going to show up on on the screen. This doesn't have a sophisticated plot. It's too exposition heavy in scenes to lay down to what we finally get, which is the appearance of these bratwurst 
Oh, the Bratsies. Oh, God. So you have these Bratsies, which were uh, apparently played by Smith himself. Yeah. Uh, the scenes where they are fighting the Bratsies, I could not help but laugh at the absurdity of it. It's like a Sam Raimi, early Sam Raimi film in that regard. It's fun. It It's not complicated. It's not gorgeous filmmaking. And, and Raimi obviously evolved way beyond that even as he stuck to that kind of comedy horror genre but i had fun watching them fight the brazis despite the bad special effects when they explode despite that smith can't really direct action and and so they really had to use creative camera work to cover that up kind of like we were talking about before but i had fun with those fight scenes now when it gets to the point that Garmin's character shows up and is explaining more exposition after we've gotten the exposition earlier. Yeah, the movie comes to a, a halt, and it's and it's not as funny. And when the person who we still haven't in, in, uh, introduced shows up, it, it's terrible. But I had fun watching this, and and I, I think Smith gets some things like the the constant girls needing to put their phones down and, and living in their phones. Dude, I, I taught high school for ten years. I've seen that. That's real. So I, I think. You know, he hit on a couple of things, and I, I think some of the fight scenes are fun. I can agree to a certain extent that, like, I think with your, especially your first comment about, like, the sort of the chemistry between the two girls, I think because obviously they did grow up as, like, friends because Lily Rose Depp went to school with Harley Quinn, apparently, and they were, you know, fast friends from grade school onward. And, I mean, I think they have a solid chemistry together as friends, I can agree with that. Um, if anything, I could see them maybe being better in someone else's movie. Uh, but I think necessarily this one kind of, it, it's a lot of like sort of resting on the laurels. It's like, oh, but our daughters, we can have them do whatever the hell they want. It's fine. We don't have to really give them any actual direction. And I think that also kind of feels the same way, even with the script, in terms of like some of the satiric points you're talking about, about like, oh, there are girls that keep going onto their phones. Like, okay, Kevin, that's not a bad base. Is there anything else about them? Or right. even what is your take on that? Because at the same time, they also flip-flop constantly between they're both idiots or one of them's the idiot and one of them's the smarter one. There's no real dynamic between those two characters of the two Colleens. And even yes. then, it's like, are they secretly smarter than all the adults who are stupid? Or are they even more stupid than the adults? And that lack of, like, cohesion of, like, whatever the take is. Like, it might seem like, oh, you're putting too high a standard on the movie. No, it's just, like, a decent idea of, like, what you're kind of trying to say about these two fucking characters as characters and there's nothing there at all and to go back with what you said right in the beginning uh rafe uh when i said kevin smith has a lack of style i meant pure directing not script writing uh i i believe he is a very good writer directing no this movie there's no flair to this movie at least in my personal opinion Oh God, Sam Sam Raimi. <laughs> <laughs> so you watch you watch the original the Evil Dead, the original oh, Evil yeah. Dead, oh, and nine. and watch you know a couple of just the fight scenes, just pull out the Bratsy scenes, and there's some similarities there. Say we can compare the two. Well, Evil Dead was Sam Raimi's first movie, and look where he, what he's become. This is Kevin Smith's like seventh, eighth, ninth movie. Oh yeah. I, I, and, and I'm and I'm making that comparison intentionally of of comparing it to a first and as I said, Raimi has evolved and and this is where Smith is with this story. I totally agree with you. Can you just tell me that it's shit? Can you just say it's shit for me? <laughs> it's not shit. It's not bad. It's just not good. Damn it, Rafe! You're getting close to the fucking list. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, simmer down, everybody. I think the better comparison is it feels a lot more like if you've seen any of the other earlier shorts of Sam Raimi, like where it's him and 
Bruce Campbell and Ted Raimi in high school fucking around, which, like, that's fine and charming at that, you know, particular time, I agree. I think at this point, it just feels just kind of, like, very gangly and very just not funny. I think that's just another thing is I, I... didn't laugh a single time the first time I saw this movie, which I did see in a theater. Shout out to previous guest Tori DePina and his girlfriend Jenny, who I saw this with post my first Dragon Con. Because we were like, <laughs> oh my god, we're going to be like the only ones there. We were, and we regretted every second of it. Uh, even when I watched it again on Netflix, it's just, I, it's so much more groaning. And it's so much more, I think it's also, admittingly, like I said, I'm maybe a bit more inside. There are certain things that he does where I can like clearly see, oh, this is from whatever podcast, whatever other thing, whatever this or that, and it just feels kind of grating and self-serving in so many regards. Like, even, we didn't mention this, but every time a new character's introduced, they have their version of Instagram called Instacan, because uh, Canada, and they introduce the character with, like, a little bio and then some comments that are underneath. And there's even the point when, like, Jennifer Schwalbach-Smith, his real-life wife, mother of Harley Quinn, her character pops up and then the little Instacan thing, and there's a case Smitty user who says, I'd hit that. Because get it? Because they fuck. Because they're husband and wife. <laughs> Do they? I don't know if no, you got it. Oh, I thought we established in Dogma, husband and wife don't fuck. Well, I mean, he's clearly Joseph and Mary, and Harley Quinn is Jesus, <laughs> as this movie perpetuates. It's very true. You're very right on that. It's a fucking another Rob and Sherry zombie thing. We get it. You think your wife's hot. That's great. Okay. okay. God, you want me to say something's shit? How yeah. about these accents? The only one who manages any sort of relatively passing Canadian accent is Justin Long. Everybody else, they just change one syllable when it a- appears. Oh, yes, yes. French Canadian accent. <laughs> oh, God, Johnny Depp. All right, well, All right. I guess we should probably talk about it, yeah, uh, at this point. We- we've been dancing around this for too long. This, why the, why the, what the, why the <laughs> fuck is Johnny Depp in these movies? What is happening here? Right, as his character from Tusk, the Guy LaPointe character. Yeah, let's bring that character back, because that was such a success. Hey, Kevin Smith, just because you have a fucking idea, doesn't mean you gotta make a movie. (laughs) It was just as terrible as it was in Tusk, and the thing is, there's more of him here. Even more Inspector Clouseau-style mugging that's going on as his character, particularly when he's underneath the ground with, like, the two Colleen's, and, like, his face keeps changing moles every shot. And that's supposed to be, like, a fun joke, a wink. It was funnier in Robin Hood Men in Tights, for God's sakes. That's true. They did They did steal that joke directly from Robin Men in Tights. <laughs> but even Rafe, you can admit that that was, uh, he's a pretty terrible character. Yes. Did you even see Tusk? I don't know if you have. I have not seen Tusk. Yeah. I mean, the, the first scene that he shows up in, I was like, well, this is an interesting cameo because, you know, his daughter's in the movie. How How nice of him to put in a supporting appearance. And then it goes on and on and on and on. And it was like, no, this is this is too much. And it's almost the same problem as with like the the Pirates of the Caribbean movies or Lone Ranger or Tim Burton films or whatever is somebody just needs to tell Johnny Depp, no, stop. Like you're good for, you know, 30 seconds, a minute, 30 seconds of material, but then it's done. It's played out. It's time to stop doing this. And instead, Tim Burton and Gore Verbinski and now Kevin Smith, they just let him go. Stop. You're you're hurting yeah. the audience. Uh, <laughs> he's just as bad in Tusk. Uh, I mean, Tusk is worth watching for Michael Parks, uh, but that's about it. 
Well, and my understanding is the third movie in the trilogy will be a a Jaws like movie with Johnny Depp playing the the, the mm-hmm. this character yeah, called the, Moose in the, Jaws in the Quint role. Yes, that's his plan. Which means he's going to get an awesome, uh, you know, Arizona speech, which was what three three minutes, four minutes. Right, the Indianapolis. Or Indianapolis. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, I love that great ship, the Arizona. One of my favorite vessels. Um, Whatever, but... man. <laughs> I like the tea. <laughs> uh, but the, the thing is, even with like Johnny Depp doing that and his constant mugging, it, it's a rule that he seems to keep going, though, with like any of the other characters in the movie, which is sort of my bigger problem. Like We haven't mentioned some of the other people, like the two... Uh, boys who the girls have a fascination with, or at least the one boy and his weirdo fucking friend who's from Teen Wolf. Um, yeah. yeah, that blew my mind. <laughs> yes, um, and uh, how they're kind of like, oh, initially the desire of their affection is like the main boy, and then it turns out they're like satanic killers? Just randomly? Just right. that, that that happens just so we can, I guess, have a point where they come back to the store and try and kill them, but then they get killed by the Bratzies, and has the biggest, like, what the fuck terrible like example of the direction where they're talking on their phones and one they're teenagers they don't talk on their cell phones at all that's not a thing they do and two that anytime you can clearly see the phone it's on the front menu screen with all the apps on it and they're not on the actual phone screen (laughs) because you're talking about other players i really loved tony hale and natasha leone as the the father and his girlfriend that those their little scene i had a lot of fun with and i liked justin long but i i don't know why i just i like justin long but back to the point i was going to make earlier okay so the metaphor of dogma as kind of wizard of oz that's wizard of oz this is alice in wonderland and the difference is in in wizard of oz you have an active protagonist going through the story initiating change as they go through the story in alice in wonderland it's just about alice encountering a bunch of weird shit she doesn't actually interact with what's going on. It just is one weird encounter after another. And that's what happens here. You have these two girls and they go from one weird encounter to another, whether it's, you know, dad and his girlfriend or the, the satanic killers or the Bratzies or whatever. Alice in Wonderland can get away with less of a narrative, but it's also less interesting because your protagonist isn't really involved in the story. They're just a passive observer. And that's kind of what's going on here. See, I hear that, but then again, I realize as you're saying it that like that's slightly true here. But at the same time, I think Kevin Smith made his better Alice in Wonderland style story with a passive protagonist. It was Clerks. Clerks is literally true. that. That's oh yeah, that's, and way more of that because yeah, yeah, Dante doesn't right. fucking fight people <laughs> and shit with their fucking mops and whatever. Well, because Clerks is Dante's Inferno, which is very similar to that in as far as a, a passive right. observer. Um, but yeah, I mean that's but that's but that's that's the difference between the two. That's why I found it interesting you made that that connection earlier of Wizard of Oz because this is the opposite. This is the Alice in Wonderland. They're not really they do not serve the story going from point A to point B to point C. Things happen that take them from point A to point B to point C, and they could be as dumb as a post, and it still is going to progress just because things happen. There's no logic to it. Right, right. I mean, I, I guess that's that's true to a certain extent. But it also tries to have a semblance of a story more so than, like, an Alice in Wonderland or a Clerks, even, and I think that's kind of its downfall. Is I would probably be more interested, I agree, if it was sort of, like, these characters encountering sort of the weird, bizarre 
especially horror sort of comedy stuff happening in Canada. And it is more just like it's a PG-13 sort of gremlin story. But then again, the movie just kind of even changes genres as opposed to even just story at any different point where it's like, oh, hey, now it's like this teen, cute, like clueless comedy with these two kids. Oh, and here it becomes this almost Scott Pilgrimy attempt at like uh, video game style fight between the characters, um, but it's obviously Kevin Smith's version of that. Or then, especially when they go down to that bunker and they have to fight this giant hockey mask goalie monster, which looks (laughs) great, honestly, as, like, a sort of, like, monster character, but Kevin Smith can't light it right because it looks like it's in the middle Mm -hmm. of a fucking convenience store. (laughs) So it just looks like... You can see all, like, the seams and the awkwardness and all that other stuff. On top of the Bratsies being poorly, you know, just uh, chroma-keyed, basically, onto them. There's also, during that whole sequence, there's the big rail against critics that I'm also kind of confused by. He's done this before in other movies, especially... He does it in Dogma. Right, in, in Dogma he does it, even with, like, the little platypus thing, which was cute. Um, here, even, it, it's this more confused, though, because it's just like, oh, hey, this guy who was a, you know, a German sculptor became, you know, hateful because critics made fun of his work, and so now he's become an impressionist underground, and he becomes a bad critic at the same time. I'm not sure what he's trying to say at all with that. Part of that is personal journey for Smith, because after um, Red State initially got negative reviews at, like, Sundance, he really started bashing on critics i mean you see that in in dogma but that was before that happened but after he's become one of those filmmakers where critics are the enemy but it wasn't even that it was cop out cop out was the one where he kept making that point though cop out was the one because it's like yeah because everyone hated cop out there was at least a mixed reception of red state jay and silent bob strike back the whole part of it is that they're they're upset at online critics yes that's the whole crux of the movie yes I mean, yeah, it's not a he's new always he's always been upset that people don't like his shit, and it's like, dude, that's okay. You want to make these movies? That's fine. Nobody's gonna like everything you do. You just gotta fucking accept it. But I think this is a good example because here you are saying it's absolute shit, and here I am saying it's not that bad. It's just not good. And so you know, different different strokes for different folks. You are, you, I, I, and I shit you not, you are one of two people I know <laughs> who are like, yeah, this is okay. I mean, honestly. And again, I think it's, I think it's that I've been subjected to so much worse than this. Um, oh, of course. That, that, that I'm, I'm skewed to some degree. I mean, I, would I sit down and watch this again? Probably not. I've seen it. I'm good. But I, I got some entertainment out of it. Terrible stuff like this. I just think in terms of even his career, it feels just like sort of so lazy in a way that even as bad as like a cop-out is i can i at least laughed a couple times in a cop-out i would argue during and most of the scenes with sean william scott i think are funny and the no scene with tracy morgan where he just goes crazy in the car i would say those are just two things i found kind of fun about cop-out versus i couldn't name one scene i laughed at in the yoga hosers let let me ask you a question though for for both of you do you think he would have been accused of being lazy if he had not gone down the route of the, the Bratzies and the bunker and that kind of stuff, and he had just done the two daughters in a Clerks-style movie? I mean, he probably would have been accused of being repetitive, but at the same time, he would have also been accused of being more consistent. I think that's the thing. Even if he was making that movie that was not as like ambitiously like action-heavy and all this other shit that he kind of tries to do here, and the, my bigger problem is less with like him doing these like oh Bratzies or horror comedy and this other stuff, and just not having any kind of cohesion. It's like I've said before on this podcast. It's a Steve Martin quote from *Planes, Trains, and Automobiles*. If you're gonna say something, have a point. 
it makes it so much more interesting for the listener. <laughs> and yeah. this isn't fucking interesting. <laughs> no, I agree. And he's he's clearly going back to the well again with with his next movie. I mean, I, I made the comparison earlier with Rob Zombie and Rob Zombie's new movie. It's like, dude, make something new, make something you're firmly behind, or don't. Just don't make anything. Like you just said, Tom's have a fucking point. There, there is no point to this movie. What does this movie offer at all, except to put his daughter and her best friend on the big screen? That's it. This was not made for anybody but himself and his kid. Well, and and Johnny Depp and his kid. Johnny Depp was a drunk. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that those sort of his solid final thoughts had him because I think you're going to burst a blood vessel if we keep letting you go. This movie gave me pink. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Great punctuation point to that final thought. Rafe, please go. Your final thoughts. I, I did not get kidney stones nor pink eye from this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's got some problems. I, I I think Johnny Depp goes on for too long, and I think the accents are absolutely horrendous. I laughed. I was entertained. Would I recommend it to other people? Probably not. I, I think it's a it's a it's definitely a personal taste type movie that you're going to choose whether you like it or hate it, and I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of people who, who fall you know, above liking it as far as scale goes, but it's, it's, it's not bad. It's, I I like seeing Smith push himself as a director. And so, you know, I I like seeing him attempt new things. He's not always going to be successful, but I also think he could have just taken the two daughters and done a clerks for the next generation and been successful with that. And perhaps more so. I'll say this much, that I think he's done that with other movies that, like, I don't necessarily like, but I can respect that he did try and push himself a bit. Like, everyone hates Jersey Girl. I love Jersey Girl. Like, I, I won't go that far, but I think it's perfectly fine and harmless. It's a cute movie for what it is. It's him doing more of a story about, like, being a father to a young girl. Yeah, because you haven't had a kid yet. When you have a kid, revisit it. You'll love it at that point. <laughs> you think I'm having children in this world? <laughs> <laughs> I have a kid. Hey, I have a kid. I fucking hate it. So, so, like with the Jersey Girl, like I'm not a huge fan of that movie, but I can respect like he's doing something a, a bit outside of his wheelhouse that feels personal, but also has more of a consistency to it. That's all I really ask is just like, okay, you can like push your boundaries, do something odd. I think that's what even Tusk has an issue with because despite it being a horror comedy, the horror and the comedy don't mix together whatsoever in that movie. And I think it's also the same here, where whatever many thousands of different genres he tries to do, it all feels like we mentioned, like almost a home movie. You know, all these people who are either friends of the family or directly family coming together and putting on a cute little show that I'm like, all right, that's nice for you. And I'm sure you had fun making it, as Rafe mentioned. But at the same time, it's like such a big mess that honestly, I'm more of a fan of what Smith's doing with Jane Silent Bob uh, get rebooted, where it's like, hey, we're doing a Fathom event screening and we're just showing it around at like tour events or whatever. It's not being released wide. And even Rob Zombie's doing that with uh, Three from Hell as well. Which is like, you know what, fine, it's clearly for your fans who are just going to flock to this anyway. Good, sure, that that's that's alright, but I mean, I paid money just to see the movie itself when it was in theaters. I'm one of the, I, I contribute some of the $38,784 this movie fucking made <laughs> at the box <laughs> office. Yeah, it, it's, uh, even with like some of the people you talked about, like a Tony Hale or Natasha Leone, I didn't find them funny at all. I found, like, they kind of wasted a lot of these people who popped in whenever they did. Or I just feel sad for Justin Long whenever I see him in these movies, because <laughs> I think he's very talented, and I think he's just kind of, like, slumming it just where he is now in his career, and now Smith is kind of like, this movie feels sort of like a bottom of the barrel with his Yogi Bayer joke, 
that we never talked about with the whole like Warner Brothers suing him and all this other shit this labored which was funny for 30 seconds and then they kept going and it needed to stop yep and I think that's the thing um it's just sort of proof that he needed to stop probably in an early production phase with this movie and just make maybe a cute little short with your kid and her best friend Probably would have been a better idea than making a movie. Probably less expensive for everybody. And uh, probably just a less of a waste of time. Kevin. If you're listening, I'm sure you are. Oh. <laughs> I don't think he's listening. <laughs> what? What are you talking about? He loves criticism, right? That's what we talked about. Hey, wait a minute. He's one of the two dozen regular listeners we have. <laughs> I'm we sure. know that. He's Kay Smitty, and he talks about how much he wants to bang Jennifer Schwalbach, obviously. <laughs> Clearly. But yeah, that's the end of our double feature uh, after a, a while. That's the end of our double feature discussion. And uh, before we go uh, and pick our movies for next week, which you want to stick around for, we have some feedback to read because every uh, Monday we put out a feeler on the at DEDB pod Facebook and Twitter page about what are your favorite and least favorite things related to whatever movie topic we're doing and uh, we got a solid amount of feedback here so i'll read through all of it and then we'll comment on here a bit uh first from james rodriguez who says uh for me kevin smith is great when he's delivering more thoughtful pieces of work such as the smart satire around religion which is dogma and chasing amy his mature work about love relationships and sexuality it's a shame smith moved away from works like these instead opting for an amateurish mess like cop out and yoga hosers a mess worked around kissing ass over voice impressions and smith's bitter ramblings about critics uh, Mike Faber of the ESO Network says, uh, favorite dogma, least favorite tusk. Uh, Joseph Stephen Heath says, uh, favorite dogma, least favorite cop-out. Haven't seen Yoga Hosers, but that might take the spot if I ever do. I think tusk is half fantastic and half terrible. A terrible half is anytime Johnny Depp is doing whatever the hell he's doing. Uh, Nathan Lewis says, favorite Mallrats, least favorite dogma. Uh, Chris Jones says, favorite dogma, least favorite Chasing Amy. Unless Jersey Girl counts, then it's Jersey Girl. Um, hey Zeus at Nazihair um, on Twitter says, my fave is Chasing Amy, as deeply a dated hetero view of gays and lesbians as it is. It's still a pretty charming and personal romantic comedy, great writing. Worst yoga hoses is pretty bad. Outdated Canadian jokes and just straight ripoffs of Scott Pilgrim with its visual cues. And then uh, Stephen D. at Waiting FTH says, uh, My favorite would be Clerks, Mallrats, and Dogma. Uh, everything else I don't really remember. And Chasing Amy didn't hold up for me on a recent rewatch attempt. I haven't seen anything past Clerks 2, though, so I guess anything after that would be my least favorite. Can I add a bit of feedback we got, too, that wasn't on the list? Yes. Uh, a friend of mine, Jen Farah, Tusk was the most difficult to watch the entire time. I was like, shocked face! I enjoy Yoga Hosers because I was able to introduce my kid to Kevin Smith movies. Doggo is my favorite, uh, but Clerks 1 and 2 will always be my favorite favorites. I'm meeting him and Jason Mewes in October, and I can't wait. So she is the second person I know (laughs) (laughs) out of the two that actually enjoys Yoga Hosers because I actually do personally know her. And next time I see her, I'm going to have huge, huge words with her. (laughs) <laughs> um i mean I, I guess it's arguably a gateway point given it's is like only second pg-13 rated movie right after jersey girl but but maybe there's some films and some directors that you shouldn't have a gateway maybe that you should be an adult before you watch them yoga horses is just pure shit why would you subject that to anybody look some people had a fun time like rafe we subjected it to it he had a fun time <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> And yeah, I guess we haven't talked about some of these, like, Chasing Amy seems to be very divisive, 
amongst even people in this room. Rafe, where do you stand on Chasing Amy? You know, I know that it's held as like one of his absolute favorites. It's the one that got the Criterion treatment. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of it. It it just did it didn't connect with me for some reason, and I haven't seen it in many years. But when I did watch it, I just remember that I I felt I didn't really feel anything after watching it. It kind of just didn't connect with me and. Uh, the way that clerks or uh, mall rats or or any of the others had. So maybe I need to revisit it, but I'm not I'm not a huge fan of it. I did revisit it before we recorded this, and I'll say that I think there's a lot of fun stuff in Chasing Amy. I think a lot of stuff that's interesting. I think especially I think Joey Lord Adams, despite you know her voice that's so controversial amongst people, I find her performance that to be really like powerful and palpable. You know, I like Dwight Ewell as the Hooper X character, and even Jason Lee works interestingly as, like I said, sort of a, a sort of urtext for a lot of modern homophobia that's interesting. Um, I just think the Holden McNeil character is such a fucking idiot, especially in a recent viewing of just some of the ideas he comes up with, like particularly the whole climactic thing where he decides, like, this will fix everything, is one of the dumbest things I think anyone can ever think of. And the movie's clearly pointing that out, but also that doesn't mean I'm that invested in him as a character at all. It's just like, even for 1997, this was a fucking stupid idea, you idiot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I hear the logic behind uh, Nathan Lewis's uh, least favorite being Dogma. Because I can understand Mallrats having a favorite place, but I cannot understand Dogma as a least favorite. Well, I look at it like this with Dogma. I mean, a lot of people, it might be their least favorite because either A... Maybe they are very religious or it's just, you know, like you already said earlier, strokes. I mean, it might also just be that it's maybe him covering sort of like bigger subject matter instead of like if he leans more toward a mall rats, maybe dogma isn't as much of his thing because it's like it's dealing with heavier subject matter. And maybe he prefers, you know, like getting to a Jay and Silent Bob where it's a lot more like silly, wacky antics, which when I was younger, that was like the second one I saw because that one aired on Comedy Central a lot. especially Right, Strike Back. And then it was, uh, I remember they created the whole secret stash thing where they would air movies uncensored after midnight. And I remember that's for the first time I saw like Dogma or that movie completely uncensored, mm-hmm. and uh, I rewatched it like a bunch of all of Kevin Smith's movies um, a few years ago, and that one definitely holds up so poorly because it's just like such a jerk off fest to himself. I liked it when it first came out because again it was just dick and fart humor and you know sexy women and a bunch of shenanigans. Man, does it not hold up? It is atrocious. That's why the next one looks like. Every stoner comedy you know just rolled into one movie. But get it, we're being clever about reboots, Adam, because we're doing the same movie again. Get it? So oh, funny now. So fucking, oh, man. <laughs> oh. You know, the thing is, if you notice with our feedback, I mean, Dogma was clear the winner as far as everybody's favorite. So I'd argue that Dogma definitely is his one movie that stands the test of time. That's true, and then like something like I would say his second best movie, A Clerk's, works so well because it's like a diametric opposite, but in a way that's sort of like a fascinating relic where it is of 1994, mm-hmm. and it feels so perfectly like just like encased in amber. It's just like what the independent film scene was at that time, and how kind of grimy but realistic it is, even though he does silly things with like the characters at the same time. Um, it, it, it that's what's so interesting about that one, especially it almost feels like a fucking documentary with silly yeah. skits and vignettes of just like, oh, this is what it's like fucking working at a shitty job in your twenties and you don't have much direction in your life. Oh sure. And just on, on a film fan level as far as a what someone could do with a low budget. Yes. I mean just to see, you know, like it, it reminds me even it's like a El Mariachi just that renegade filmmaking that was being done back then. And I mean, 
out of all the ones you can think of, what are the two that stand out? Well, Kevin Smith and Robert Rodriguez. I mean, for that level alone, clerks will stand the test of time just to say, you know, you don't have to have a major budget or even great equipment to make a cohesive and funny movie. Or talented actors, necessarily. <laughs> I don't mean, at all. <laughs> at all. <laughs> I love Rick Darris. That guy's supposed to be the hot guy. <laughs> he looks well, yeah. like a fucking fever. In the middle of nowhere, New Jersey, yeah. It's just like he's like the hottest guy around. It's yeah. played by one of Kevin Smith's fucking high school friends in Pittsburgh. Yep. Part of the reason Clerks spoke to me is because I connected with it. It connected with stuff that was going on in my life. When I see it now, it helps remember, remind me of where I was, the point that I first saw it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think Clerks definitely holds up. I, I love revisiting it. Um, I've probably seen it more than uh, any of the other Kevin Smith movies, except for Dogma. And, you know, I'll, I'll stick up a bit for this wasn't mentioned either good or bad. I think the almost good choice that we did for me, I think, holds up a lot better than it did at the time. I think Zack and Miri Make a Porno is a pretty fun movie even if he is trying to imitate Judd Apatow stuff a lot. I think it's an interesting sort of perspective from somebody looking back at a time when they were, like, not very wealthy, kind of struggling to live, but wanting to have a passion to make, in this case, a porno, is, like, his version of, like, looking back on Clerks. I think it's a more interesting look back from him at a time of being, like, a clerk than Clerks 2 ever is with that movie. Clerks is more about the friendship than about being a clerk, and it's more about the evolution of friendships. And again, that... that because of something that was going on in my life at the point that I saw that, I really connected with that there, and, and I, I continue to maintain that. I agree with you on Zach and Miri. Yeah, I mean, and that was that was the point that I got Kevin to come on to my podcast when that was the uh, when that was his current movie, so that, that also holds a special place for me just because it, it allowed me to actually develop a kind of friendship with Kevin for a, a brief period of time. And you want to talk about Justin Long performances. <laughs> oh, God, yeah! It is five minutes he's on screen. He steals the movie. Well, and even then, yeah, like what I was saying about like, oh, looking back at being a clerk, it's not literally just the job. It's more just like his time and feeling that particular way. I think that's what Zach Miri does pretty well. It's like it's about like being in that shit position, but finding some camaraderie with a bunch of people and making like the sort of little rascals Herculean effort of like, oh, we're making a porno in a fucking coffee shop and when no one's around. And sort of that daringness, but at the same time, how that like kind of connects these people at that particular time. I, I think, once again, I think that's a more interesting way of doing it than... I think Clerks 2 aims for that. I just don't think it quite succeeds as much, especially upon rewatching it. But that's different strokes, as we've been saying. <laughs> <laughs> Multiple times over. Uh, but let's go ahead and uh, thank some people before we head out. Like, obviously, all of you who submitted feedback, thank you very much. Uh, thanks to also Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarta for our art for the show. And thanks to Mr. Rafe Telsch, of course. Another person who, if in all seriousness, this show wouldn't exist without you as well, obviously, for giving me my one opportunity at the time. I'm forever grateful to you. And now plug yourself, sir. Oh, well, thank you, Thomas. Uh, I'm I'm glad to have fostered this. Uh, I just I enjoy podcasting with you at any chance I get. I know we haven't gotten much opportunity for that, but uh, uh, I just started a new show and you do appear on it. In fact, you're going to be on the episode that comes out uh, the day after this one, if this one releases on time. Uh, <laughs> but my new podcast is Have Not Seen This. Uh, where we look at um, a movie in depth that the guest uh, picks. So they pick a movie that they love, that they are surprised uh, that people haven't seen or wish that more people have seen, and uh, uh, come on and talk about it. We had our first episode 
this week that we're recording it with uh, Margaret Tausch Williams, who was my co-host on the old podcast. She picked Alien. We discussed that, and then next week you'll be on it. Uh, and you can uh, find more information about that on Twitter. It's Have Not Seen This, and on Facebook it's Have Not Seen This Podcast. Thomas brought um, Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, which I had never oh, seen. Oh, he's been chopping at the fucking bit to talk about that movie. Yeah, so we had a great there, there conversation go, about it. So listen, and, and Adam, please come on the show in the future. I mean, if you're down for like Debbie Does Dallas or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, no, but thank you for coming on, Rafe. You, you classed up our little show, and I appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes, and you can follow our show, as I mentioned earlier, at DEDVPod on Facebook and Twitter. And you can also email us, uh, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com. Or you can uh, follow me on my own individual Twitter account at NotTheWho'sTommy, uh, where I post my musings and such. Um, you can also find my writing at uh, MarianiThomas.wordpress.com. Uh, where I write movie reviews, I would have probably a review at this point of Ad Astra. And I want to say I loved it so much. Oh my god, I was going to ask you, worth it? Oh my god. I, I got fucking love it. it. I've heard some contentious talk about it, because especially it's not quite as ponderous a space movie as it is. It veers into interesting, weird genre points that I've heard is divisive for, for some people. Um, but I, I dug it. I loved it so much. It's one of my favorites of the year so far. Cool. Yes, and uh, you can also uh, find my writing at trueSuperheroFans.com, where it's a superhero satire site uh, where I write goofy, silly ideas like um, several Twitter accounts with the same avatar saying that Joker is both the best and worst movie ever. <laughs> uh, amongst several other things. Um, really take writing for that site. And you can find Adam... Yeah, no, you're not finding me anywhere, man. That's how they get you. Right, you're you're underneath <laughs> the ground of our recording studio with a bunch of Bratsies that you've created, isn't that right? Isn't... Making dumb impressions? Studio? <laughs> <laughs> yeah you just have to come upstairs thomas and i are sitting in it oh man but that involves walking upstairs so That's I'm, do- I'm not doing that and plus i've shackled you down there anyway you're not coming back up anytime soon That's all right. yes uh but for more great content like this about me not feeding adam down there you can subscribe to us on itunes or any other place where podcasts are put out there there's stitcher there's uh, spotify there's uh the youtube channel there's so many places um and if you find us there uh, please make sure to either rate and review us or at least share the show just to give us a bit more visibility out there and do the same for rafe show yes please <laughs> yeah go check out rafe show i'm gonna start listening i'm excited <laughs> i'm excited to come on there potentially as a guest and just burn that motherfucker down <laughs> Well, three episodes, it was fun while it lasted. (laughs) Um, But now, before we finally stop recording here, um, it is time to do our picking for next week. And, uh, you know, this is the last episode released in September. And uh, last October, uh, we did all horror-centric topics every week. That's why we kind of decided to push push this up to September, just because Kevin said doesn't quite fit that, though, to Adam. A yoga hostess is quite horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we are going to go ahead and dive straight into uh, the month of October with our first of, yes, a bunch of different horror topics, where uh, first we're doing, in honor of his birthday, is the first week of October, Clive Barker, um, who, of course, is an author who has had several adaptations, some of which he's written and directed, others he has not. Um, and this was a big proponent for you, Adam, because you're a big fan of the man, yes? Yes, Absolutely. He's uh, by far and away my favorite horror author. 
I think I own every book he's put out and even the graphic novels based on some of his books. I got the chance to meet him uh, earlier this year, as well as pretty much the entire principal cast of the first Hellraiser. And that was like one of my be all end all had to do it moments. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely adore Clive Barker. Whereas conversely, I've never read anything Clive Barker's done necessarily, but I'm a fan of some of the movies that have been adapted from his work, for sure. Are you a fan at all, Rafe? His novels are great. I have not read all of them, but and in fact, probably the ones I've read have been mostly inspired by the movies I saw and then wanted to read what the original book was like. But yeah, he's he's a master of horror, no doubt. Well, and for this momentous occasion uh appropriately adam you have the two good clive barker movies and you've assigned number between one and ten for both of those and i've done the same for two bad movies either made by or based by based on clive barker objects and usually um at the end of every episode we would each pick number between one and ten and decide the fate for next week but uh when we have a guest like rafe here he um takes the hellraiser cube and opens it up to which direction <laughs> um, uh, excuse me it's called the lament configuration <laughs> <laughs> but anyway Rafe go ahead and for Adam's two good picks number between one and ten alright Adam I'm giving you a seven at number eight I have which I feel is one of the most underappreciated horror films of all time Candyman fuck yeah Candyman yeah I thought I forgot that was a Clive Barker one. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I I love it. And at number three I had Lord of Illusions. I haven't actually seen that one before. Oh, it's really good. That's uh uh Scott Bakula. Yeah, man, it's Sam from fucking Quantum Leap. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. Yeah, but I fucking love Candyman. I'm so excited oh to talk about Candyman. <laughs> good picks. Not ones I would have picked, but good picks. Thanks, man. Thomas, uh, for yes. your bad, let's go with a two. All right. At number three, I had a 1984 film that Clive Berger himself was quite disappointed in. It was one of his, an early adaptation of one of his works. It is Rawhead Rex. Oh, God. Fucker. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> I have not seen this one before, or my other choice at number seven, which was uh, Quicksilver Highway. Oh, God. I don't know that one at all. Jesus Christ. Way to pull them out of your fucking ass cheeks. Look, okay, here's the thing. Adam, like, the big thing with choosing these was, like, I could have gone with so many stupid Hellraiser sequels, but I didn't want to do that. True. No, yeah. (laughs) Well, on uh, that lovely note, let's go ahead and uh, get the hell out of here, boys, uh, because we're on a mission from God, aren't we? Right? (laughs) Right. Right. Why are we the Blues Brothers? Whose house? Runs out. <laughs> Snoochie boochies, everybody. Good night. Good night. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com.
ESOnetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.